But I have uh, just a bit of housekeeping to mention to you all before we get into the text. Uh, You may have already picked up one of these. If not, though, I'd encourage you to pick one up. This is out there on the tables. And uh, it is called the New Testament in a Year Reading Plan. It's our first Baptist Pal reading plan for 2022. Uh, This is to serve you, okay? Um, Humans were not made for reading plans. Reading plans were made for humans. Keep that in mind. So if you already have a Bible reading plan that works wonders for you and you've been doing it now for a number of years and it keeps you in the word of God, we don't want to distract you from that plan. So keep that in mind. However, if uh, you might consider joining us as a church and reading through various passages together week by week, day by day, it's a five day a week reading plan. Pastor Tim put this together using other resources. It also includes a scripture memory verse, one per week, one passage per week, let's say. I've not looked through all of them, but one passage per week. And uh, it'll give me opportunity as well as a pastor to refer to some of the passages perhaps that we are reading through currently as a church. And then additionally, our D groups, our discipleship groups, some of those have started. And these are just our smaller, more intimate groups for accountability and Bible reading and prayer. Um, Those groups will be going through this reading plan. So it's read through the New Testament in a year. And I'd encourage you to pick this up. Uh, Pray about joining us. And if you're not in the word of God, then pray about joining us and then join us, okay? Um, Get into the text of scripture in 2022 with us. Those are out on the tables. Would you add anything to that, Pastor Tim? Is that sufficient for what we wanted to say? All right, amen. Um, Well, uh, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about being in the text together throughout the year. Deuteronomy chapter 12, and uh, we are going to be preaching through the entire chapter. However, we're going to read together verses 1 through 14, and because this is the Word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's Day, if you are able, would you please stand to hear from the God who still speaks in his word. Deuteronomy chapter 12, again, we're going to preach through the entire chapter. That's the aim anyway, but we're going to read verses 1 through 14. Moses writes, as he's carried along by the Spirit. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here Today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters 
your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your towns since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. Church family, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. One of the greatest joys of serving Christ is to see someone come to know and trust and treasure Christ for the very first time. I've had that privilege a few times. I know some of you have. Others of you, I know, have even shared with me the burden of wanting to see that and not being privileged to see that. Remain faithful, brothers and sisters. May the Lord grant you the joy of seeing that and being an instrument in the Lord's hand in seeing this come to pass. However, I'm going to add to this, I think equally pleasurable now that I have had the privilege of serving as a pastor for several years is the joy of teaching brand new believers what it means to follow Jesus. I'm talking about infants in Christ. Those who have had their eyes opened by the power of the Spirit of God, the preaching of the gospel. And this just happened. The world is an entirely new place. They actually have come to know the God who made them and now the God who has redeemed them. And then you get to come alongside of them and you get to explain what it means to live a life of faith. Several years ago, a friend of mine, we'll call him Sam. Sam came to trust in Jesus from a background that was more overtly non-Christian than most. And I had known this friend for many years over a period of time. I, I was privileged to see the Spirit of God work in his heart, in his mind, in his life. And, and eventually he came to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, I remember the night when he came to faith in Jesus Christ. I remember where we were. I remember the room in which we stood when he came to faith. And I remember bowing our heads and I remember him saying, and this was, by the way, this was a man. He was a man's man, if I could say it that way. And he, and he wasn't a man who was interested in saving face. He was never a man who claimed to be Christian. In fact, he abhorred those who claimed to be Christian and whose lives actually consistently and characteristically contradicted that claim. So when he said, I believe, I listened. And I remember that night when he said, I, I believe the gospel. I know what that means. I, I'm ready to give my life to Christ and I'm ready to follow Jesus with all that I am. And so we prayed that night and not long after that, uh, he was baptized. And after he came to know Jesus Christ, Sam had so much to learn about what a life of faith looked like. In fact, as I reflected on that this past week, I remember some frustrating times with this brother. Because we forget, after having been a Christian for some time, we forget what it's like to be brand new in the faith and to just begin to learn to crawl, not walk yet. We're not learning to walk, we're learning to crawl. We're certainly not learning to run. And, and we have those rough age, edges that are going over time to be sanded off by the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God, but they're still there. And uh, I remember walking through week by week, month by month, year by year with, with Sam. He, he had to learn what it was like to replace, let's call them habits, habits that were contrary to scripture, habits that were contrary to the gospel that he now treasured. He had to learn by the power of the spirit of God to replace those habits with habits that brought glory to Jesus Christ. And that takes time. And he's still going through that process. He would tell you now, I'm still going through that process. He learned over time that a life of faith consisted of sexually pure relationships, relationships that he knew very little about prior to coming to Christ. 
He learned that the redemption that Christ had won for him changed the way he used his money, changed the way he paid his taxes. I know that thrills you this morning. Changed the way he treated his friends, changed the way he used his words, changed the way he employed his mind, changed the way he viewed drugs and alcohol. Changed the way he approached every facet of life. He knew that when he came to know Jesus Christ, but then he began the journey of understanding what it looked like. He was redeemed. He had trusted in Jesus. Now he needed to learn what the life of faith looked like. And as I mentioned, he would tell you today, he's still learning. But I will tell you, I will tell you that it's been a joy to watch him go from crawling to walking and now running as a mature saint in the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 12 through Deuteronomy chapter 26, a large portion of this book, details what the redeemed life looked like for the Israelites. That's what this section is all about. Beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and running through Deuteronomy chapter 26, we learn a bit more about what it meant for those who were redeemed by God's gracious power out of Egypt, now a second generation, entering the promised land, what it looked like for those who were redeemed to live a life consistent with that redemption. That's what this is all about. As I mentioned a moment ago, God had rescued Israel approximately 40 years prior to what's taking place in this text. And now this new generation of rescued Israelites are standing on the plains of Moab about to enter the land of Canaan, the promised land. And Moses, as it were, as he continues to preach, now he's giving to them a detailed description of what the life of faith looks like. This is a kind of catechesis class. He's instructing them. This is what it means to follow the God who has redeemed you. And so there's a lot here for us as followers of Jesus Christ. And we'll get to that here in just a moment. This portion, that is Deuteronomy chapter 12. So I was mentioning a moment ago, Deuteronomy 12 to 26. But our particular chapter this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 12, focuses on how Israel is to worship the God who rescued them. And I've mentioned this to you before, but it's been a little time. We took a break for Advent and Christmas, and now we're post-Christmas, so we're back in Deuteronomy. But I mentioned this to you before, that beginning in chapter 12, what you find is, and this isn't perfect, but I do think it's intentional, and you, and you can detect it, each of the Ten Commandments are unpacked in their order. What is the beginning of the Ten Commandments? After the Lord reminds them that he is the Lord their God who rescued them. You shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol, right? Or an image. And so Moses begins to unpack these commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 12. What does it look like for Israel to have no other gods before the Lord their God? What does it look like for Israel not to make an image in worship of the Lord their God? And he'll continue to do this throughout this broader section in Deuteronomy. Now, I want to mention this to you. A lot of introductory comments to our text this morning, in part because we haven't been in Deuteronomy in a while. But these instructions in Deuteronomy, chapter 12 and then so much more later, for example, in chapter 14, we're going to get to clean and unclean foods because it matters what they're eating. The redeemed life for the Israelite at this time looked like this with reference to their diet. But in our text, chapter 12 as well, these instructions are what many commentators have called highly 
occasional instructions. That is to say, they were given at a particular time for a particular people with a particular purpose. There was a particular occasion for these instructions. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that there's no relevance for us as followers of Jesus Christ. We know, according to the words of the Apostle Paul, that whatever was written in former days was written down for our instruction. He says that very clearly. Romans 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We know that the Old Testament, first and foremost, or fundamentally, is a Christian book. But there does, at least upon initial glance, appear to be a chasm between the text of the Old Testament and our contemporary 21st century cultural climate right here in Powell, Tennessee, as followers of Jesus Christ, right? So if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find oftentimes you feel like you're reading about a distant land, a distant people, a distant world altogether, So we're going to do this this morning. This has informed the outline. This morning, we are going to unpack this text, if you're taking notes, in two stages. Don't worry, don't worry we're going to get to three points, Kate. Stage two has three points. Had to get in there somehow. Two stages this morning, and we're going to call these two stages, first of all, worship then. Worship then. And here we're going to look at the various ways God instructed Israel to worship him in the text. Just walk through the text together. And then after explaining worship then, we will consider worship now. Worship now. And here we will focus on the various ways God's instruction to Israel then actually informs our worship now, because God is indeed giving us instruction in the text as followers of Jesus Christ. This is, by the way, I'm, you know, I'm piggybacking on, on uh, the late John Stott. The late John Stott, give credit where credit is due, wrote a book some time ago, and the book is called uh, Between Two Worlds. And he says that the task of the preacher is that of a bridge builder. And so we're gonna try to build a bridge this morning. But we're going to do that from the text. Build a bridge from what appears to be an ancient context, and, and it is. And uh, we're going to build it to our present context, but that's precisely what the Spirit is doing as we read this book as a Christian book. Okay? All of that was an introduction. All of that, Chuck, was free. Can you believe it? What a day. Merry Christmas. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's begin by considering worship then. Worship then. Look down at verses two and three with me, okay? Get right into this. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains, the hills, every green tree, they are to tear down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, burn their asherim, that is, images of a fertility goddess, so burn these images with fire. Chop down the carved images of their gods. Destroy their name out of that place. Immediately in our text, we find that God is interested in Israel destroying and decimating all of the places where the Canaanites worshiped. So these locations, high mountains, these elevated places, which of course in the ancient world would have been kind of symbolic of getting closer to God. In fact, even the contemporary man or woman might feel this. You know, you go up on the mountain to meet with the Lord. There's something about that, isn't there? There's a biblical argument to be made, of course, as well. Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. But these Canaanite deities were worshipped on these high places Hills, mountains. Additionally, they're worshipped under evergreen trees because these are fertility cults. And a tree that's always green is a wonderful symbol of this false god. And so Israel is to destroy these places. Now remember, we're talking about worship then. Notice verses 5, 6, and 7. 
The instruction continues, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there. There you shall go. You're gonna hear this emphasis time and again. There you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. It seems that God is incredibly concerned in Deuteronomy chapter 12 with the location for Israel's worship, doesn't it? And this is indeed true. In fact, one could argue that the primary thrust of Deuteronomy chapter 12 is the location for Israel's worship. Israel, you you may recall, Israel has been traveling in the wilderness for some time now, a few decades. And as they traveled throughout the wilderness, throughout the desert, God in his mercy had lived among them in a place called what? Tabernacle. I heard someone say that. In the tabernacle. God had graciously, in fact, it's fantastic, Exodus chapter 29, God says, I redeemed you out of Egypt so that I might live among you. I rescued you to live with you. Beautiful. And so God instructs Israel to construct the tabernacle, and this was a kind of portable temple. And they were given instructions concerning how to walk with it, how to carry it, how to, how to erect it. Of course, initially, how to build it, and so on and so forth. And when Israel would stop along the way, they were to erect the tabernacle and God would dwell in the tabernacle. Of course, God was never limited to the tabernacle. God just granted his manifest presence to the tabernacle. Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him. As Solomon would later say at the dedication of the temple, But this has been happening for some time, but the day was coming soon when Israel would settle into God's good land. So Israel was going to settle in the land of Canaan. And when that day came, there was no longer going to be this moving around or this portable temple. And so the tabernacle was going to be erected and left. And there God would dwell, as it were. There God would meet with his people and invite his people to bring by means of the priests their sacrifices and their offerings and so forth. And so this tabernacle would eventually remain stationary. And while, while later Revelation does provide a little light concerning the location, that is the geographical location for Israel's worship, Deuteronomy, interesting enough, Deuteronomy doesn't ever tell us this. The emphasis throughout our chapter, for example, falls not on the identity of the geographical location. One could argue that the emphasis falls on the tabernacle itself, and that's part of it. But the emphasis in our text, I think, falls more on the Lord's decision regarding where the tabernacle would finally rest. I want you to look at the text with me. We're going to select a few verses. Look at verse 5 again. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will what? Choose. It sounds a lot like God appearing to Abram. Go to a land I will show you. That's clear, isn't it? I'll show you. Not yet. Verse 11, look at verse 11 with me. Then to the place that the Lord your God will what? Choose to make his name dwell there. By the way, you don't have to get creative here. It's gonna be the same word every time. Let's give another shot. What do you think, Carl? Verse 14, but at the place that the Lord will... I even gave you a... I prefaced it for you, didn't I? Let's give it another shot, shall we? (laughs) At the place that the Lord your God will choose. Fantastic. You know your Bibles well. In one of your tribes. And this continues. Verse 18, the same thing. Verse 26, the same thing. What matters is that Israel knows and submits to the Lord's decision regarding where and how to worship him. You understand this? God doesn't say, get especially creative in the text. God says, 
obey. You're mine. I've rescued you. I've introduced myself to you. I am your God. And now I'm going to instruct you in how and where to worship me. By the way, I'm I'm jumping between worlds, okay? Worship then, worship now. Can I do that for just a second? There is a temptation even for us, isn't there, as Christians to focus more on stylistic preferences than on what the Lord has commanded concerning worship in Scripture. Most of the time, this is anecdotal, most of the time when I'm interacting with someone concerning worship at their church, if they say either they love it or they don't like it, it has less to do with those elements commanded in Scripture and more to do with preference. What matters most in the text? Obedience. Obedience to where and how God commands his people to worship him. And you may have noticed that Moses talks about two different scenarios, especially if you read through the entire chapter. There's one scenario in which Israel is permitted to eat meat wherever they are. And so there are a couple of times in Deuteronomy chapter 12 where God says, you're going to eat meat wherever, whenever, however you want to, however much. Whatever the Lord blesses you with, you know, by way of animals, you can slaughter them and eat them in your own homes, your own villages, your own towns, you name it, enjoy. But there is another scenario in which they are prohibited from eating meat anywhere other than in or around the tabernacle and eventually the temple, the place where God chooses for his name to dwell. And so what gives here? What's happening? Let me give you a couple of verses to look at briefly. For example, consider verse seven again. And there, there, that is, the place the Lord will choose, there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your households. So you find that emphasis throughout, especially in verses one through 14. You eat there and nowhere else. Now glance down at verse 15. However, You may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. In fact, the clean and the unclean may eat of it. It's not a matter of being clean or unclean. You can still slaughter animals and eat them as of the gazelle and as of the deer. So what exactly is Moses talking about here? What are these two scenarios? Some of the offerings and and we're not going to turn to Leviticus, but you could turn back to Leviticus. In particular, chapters one through five, actually maybe one through seven, some of the offerings, some of the animal sacrifices included a meal in the presence of the Lord that the worshiper and his household could enjoy. Do you know this? Some of you do, some of you perhaps don't. This wasn't the case, for example, with burnt offerings. Burnt offerings were entirely consumed in the Lord's presence. But this was the case with other offerings. And so there were certain offerings where you would bring your offering and portions of that offering or that animal would go to being burned on the altar. And there were other portions that would be offered to the Lord and yet enjoyed by the worshiper and by those who were with him as a kind of covenantal meal in the Lord's presence. And we don't oftentimes consider this about sacrifices and offerings. Well, when this covenantal meal took place, when, that is, they were actually making an offering to the Lord, when they were slaughtering, don't miss this, the animal for sacrifice, they were to do it exclusively at the place the Lord designated. Okay? So if the meal they were going to partake of was going to be a covenantal meal in the presence of the Lord as a kind of sacrificial meal, they were to do that only at the location designated by the Lord. But there were other meals that Israel could enjoy. And so if rather than sacrificing or slaughtering for sacrifice, if instead of that they were slaughtering simply for food, someone has a deer 
and they're hungry. And they want to have a family feast. In that case, God says, eat it wherever you like. And that's, so that's why this distinction is found in the text. But don't miss that first aspect, the covenantal meal that was tethered to the sacrificial system, that covenantal meal that was to be partaken of by the worshiper and by the household of the worshiper, that meal was to be enjoyed exclusively at the site or the location chosen by the Lord. Now, notice verses 29 to 31 with me, and then we will wrap up worship then. It serves as a good foundation for us. Verses 29 through 31. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, notice, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they've been destroyed before you, that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? so that I may also do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Israel was not to pattern their worship after the practices of the Canaanites. After all, the Canaanites did what the Lord hated. This went as far as even sacrificing their own children to a God who is oftentimes known throughout the Old Testament as the God of Molech. And you even see a couple of Judean kings who after being in this land for some time through years of compromise, Ahaz and Manasseh, both, sacrificing their own children as an act of worship. And so God says, unequivocally, don't go and take notes of the worship service of the Canaanites. I don't care what they're doing. You're not going to do what they do because I'm not the God they're worshiping. in an age in which tolerance is considered one of the greatest virtues. Intolerance is defined as the validity of other positions, the equal validity of other positions. Texts like this are offensive, I know. But God has always claimed exclusivity always. And it's no different today, Christians. I've shared this with you before. It was no different in the early church. One of the chief accusations against the early church men and women, second century, third centuries, was they claimed exclusivity. They were atheists. That is, they didn't worship other gods they actually had the audacity to believe that their God alone was God. This has always been the case for Christians. And it's predicated on God's word in Scripture. Now, we've examined worship then, making some notes of that. Let's turn to worship now. Kate, I'm going to give you three points. These are just for Kate. Worship now. And we'll ask this question. How does God's instruction for Israel's worship then inform our worship as Christians now? That's what we're asking. So we're, we're attempting to read Deuteronomy chapter 12, not merely as a historical artifact detailing ancient worship practices in the land of Canaan among the Israelites. 
It is that, but it's so much more than that as the word of God. Amen, church? This is instruction for the church today. And so that's our aim. I'm gonna give you three propositions, maybe statements, and we'll unpack those briefly. First, first, Christ is the only location for acceptable worship. Christ is the only location for acceptable worship. What does this mean? On the one hand, this means that there is not a single geographical location where Christian worship is to take place as was the case, for example, when the tabernacle came to rest in a particular area, or as was the case when the temple was constructed through King Solomon. And so there isn't a single geographical location. In fact, John chapter four, I think, highlights this reality as Jesus is interacting with the woman at the well. She's concerned with what mountain? What mountain matters? Where do we worship the Lord? You Jews say one thing, we Samaritans say something else. Jesus says you're missing it. I'm the location. And that's the on the other hand. On the other hand, while there's no geographical location, there is indeed an exclusive location, and that location is Christ himself. Let me give you a couple of examples of this in Scripture. John chapter 1, verse 14. John emphasizes this reality. And this is a verse that's very commonly quoted around this time of year. John 1, 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten son from the father, full of grace and truth. Well, the word that John uses here for dwelt among us is the same word used, same root word used throughout the Greek Old Testament for the tabernacle. Fascinating enough. In fact, some people have suggested that we translate this verse, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That is to say, God came to dwell among his people in the location of Jesus. Additionally, we'll just stay in John's gospel here for a moment. Additionally, do you recall what Jesus said to those in John chapter two, verse 19? What did Jesus say to those when they asked him as he's cleansing the temple? By what authority do you do this? Show us something. Prove that you have the authority to cleanse the temple. In John 2, 19, he says, destroy this what? Temple. And in three days, I'll raise it back up. And then John goes on to explain. A couple of verses later, John says, he said this referring to the temple of his body. What is John saying? Jesus is the location for acceptable worship. He is the place where God himself dwells among his people. After all, he shall be called Emmanuel, which translated means what? God with us. Christ is the tabernacle. Christ is the temple. Christ is the location for acceptable worship. Now, I want to take this a step further. We're going to stand on the foundation of Christ here. Since Christ is the location for acceptable worship, the body of Christ, the body of Christ becomes the place where we gather for worship. And this is what the New Testament authors will do with this reality. So if Christ is the location for acceptable Christian worship, then the people known as the body of Christ become, as it were, the kind of place where God's people are called to gather in his presence and worship him. Ephesians chapter two, verses 20, 21 and 22 is an example of this. The apostle Paul writes that Christians are being built together in Christ as a holy structure. And he says that this structure is growing, quote, into a holy temple in the Lord. You get that? In the Lord. That is in the location of the Lord. Christians are being built together as the church, as the body of Christ in the location of Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, in a dwelling place for God by the spirit. There is this inseparability between Christ and his people in the New Testament, between Christ and the church. To such a degree that when the apostle Paul is, I'm getting off a little bit here, but I think this is relevant. The apostle Paul actually is persecuting the church 
and he's on the road to Damascus. And I've said this to you before, you've heard this probably even before my time. Jesus appears to him and actually says to Paul, then Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Paul says, or Saul says, who are you? Never met you. Jesus says, I am Jesus, the one whom you're persecuting. You see, what you do to my body, you do to me. What you do to the church, you do to me. There is this inseparability between Christ and the people for whom he died, the church. And so you find this being woven throughout an understanding of the dwelling place of God and the place or the location for Christian worship. So for this reason, Paul the Apostle, he learned from that experience, by the way. And so the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. I'm gonna translate this as a Tennessean, okay? 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Paul writes, do y'all not know? These are plurals. Do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple? God's spirit dwells in y'all. There's a superiority to this way of talking, isn't there? It's biblical. If anyone, he goes on to say, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and y'all are that temple. So, friends, and I know we've got to keep going here. I camped out a little longer than I anticipated, but gathering with the church has never been optional for Christians. It's never been optional. There are extenuating circumstances. Absolutely. In fact, we're a church that has members who are shut in. They're incapable of getting outside of their house or the place where they're being cared for. And we do. We need to, as a church, continue to think and pray about how to go to them. We have brothers and sisters who are faithful, faithful to serve those who are shut in. But aside from extenuating circumstances, Christians have not considered it optional to gather in the place for Christian worship. The church, the local church. The church is the place for Christian corporate worship because the church is the body of Christ. And so in a very real sense, when someone asks you, why do you prioritize going to church? You could respond theologically in this way, because I go to meet with Christ. And if Christ says, I'm going to be there, shouldn't his followers go? I'm blessed at a very early age as a Christian. I was taught this. I just never remember a time when church wasn't a high priority because I had faithful men who were pouring into me. And they didn't say, hey, you know, you may want to consider going to church now that you love Jesus. They didn't. I came to know Jesus and I didn't know how to follow Jesus. And one of the things they said to me is, Christians are in church. And so guess what I did? By God's grace, I went to church. Been going ever since. Can't get away from the church. Praise God. And it's my joy to serve the same people for whom Christ died as a pastor now. So, and we've got a, boy, so many thoughts here. Refusing, refusing to gather with the body of Christ. Refusing to gather with the church is comparable to refusing to attend worship in the tabernacle. Refusing to gather with the church is comparable to refusing to gather during the feasts and the festivals. And we'll argue, let's argue in the way that Hebrews does. If it was important for the Israelite to gather, for worship at the tabernacle, how much more important is it for those who are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ to gather with the church? 
Okay, secondly, we won't spend as long on all of them. Secondly, the church must not pattern Christian worship after the worship of those outside of Christ. We cannot pattern Christian worship after the worship of those outside of Christ. This is the great temptation for the church within any culture that is to lose footing in the truth of Scripture to the temptations of cultural ideologies and mores. This is a temptation for all of us, friends, because the culture isn't simply something that's out there. The culture is something that is in here. I'm impacted deeply and indelibly by the culture of which I am a part. And here I would suggest a broad definition even of worship to include absolutely corporate worship and then extend also to our lives and the individual worshipful lives that we lead that serve to support and propel us into faithful corporate worship. Worship. So in what ways might the church succumb to the practices of those who are outside of the church? Let me, or outside of Christ. Let me mention just a couple of ways and we're gonna keep moving. When, when a worship service begins to closely resemble a political rally, I think we're patterning Christian worship after the worship of those outside of Christ. Be involved in politics, vote. Some of you be involved in political office as Christians. We need that. But do not confuse the worship of the living God with support of a particular political candidate. This deeply concerns me for the evangelical church in America. I think this text has something for us. Additionally, I would say when our personal lives are virtually indistinguishable from our neighbors who don't know the Lord, we are patterning our lives after the worship practices of the Canaanites. Younger Christians, I want you to hear me. Hear me say this. When there are times when your social media presence is indistinguishable from the social media presence of those who don't know Jesus, there is a problem. And I don't mean, now let me, let me be clear here, I don't mean that you sprinkle Jesus into the lake of posts that condone or support what dishonors the God you claim to trust. There should be a stark contrast between those who have come to know the living God through Jesus Christ and those who have not. So, as one who knows the living God this morning, if indeed you know him, repent, if that's you, and find all the grace you need in Christ Jesus. And empowered by that grace, change. Not in your own strength, but in his it won't make you more popular. But I think it will make you more joyful. And it will certainly bring more honor and glory to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Third. The third way this text, I think, gets carried over and informs us as worshipers today. Christ is the only acceptable sacrifice for Christian worship. Christ is the only acceptable sacrifice for Christian worship. The many sacrifices of the old covenant bore witness to the insufficiency of those sacrifices to finally remedy the problem. And nevertheless, they were to do these sacrifices as an act of faith. And we find these sacrifices in Deuteronomy chapter 12 a couple of different times. And they're detailed a bit more in portions of Exodus, portions of Leviticus but all of these sacrifices in the Old Covenant pointed to the finally sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ who would offer himself once and for all to remedy our problem of sin and separation from God. Amen. And so every one of these sacrifices pointed, incessantly pointed to the God who would become human while remaining God. 
The God-man who would live in perfect obedience to the law of God. The God-man who would obey to the point of death, even death on a cross. And who would die for sinners. The God-man who was buried, the God-man who was raised from the dead in glorious power on the third day. And the God-man who appeared to many, ascended to the right hand of the Father, prays now and will someday come back. All of these sacrifices find their fulfillment in the God-man, Jesus Christ, and in his sacrifice. So if you've not trusted in Jesus this morning, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in anything else to make your relationship right with God, get rid of it. Quit trusting in it and place your hope and faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, if that's where you are, there will be a pastor standing in the crossroads room. You can find that room as you exit this, exit this sanctuary, this main worship center. Take a left. On the right-hand side, there will be a place called the crossroads. And Pastor Darren will be in there after the service, and he would love to talk with you and pray with you about what it means to follow this Savior who offered a sufficient sacrifice for you. Well, as Israel was entering the land of Canaan, God instructed them to worship him in particular ways at a particular location, the tabernacle. We've called this worship then. There are differences between the ways they worshiped then and the ways that we worship now. However, we did identify three ways Israel's worship in the text informs our worship now. First of all, Christ is the location for acceptable worship. Secondly, we must not as a church or as Christians pattern our worship after the worship of those outside of Christ. And then finally, Christ is the only acceptable sacrifice for worship. Ajit Fernando, who is currently actually the teaching director of Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka, has a volume of expositional messages on Deuteronomy, and I love the title he gave to this chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 12. He called it Worshiping God's Way. Worshiping God's Way. When I read that, I couldn't help but consider the words of Christ in John 14, 6. I am the what? The way and the truth in the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am thankful for the privilege and the joy of handling your word this morning. I hope and pray it was faithful. And I pray that you would be honored in the hearts of your people gathered here this morning. I pray that you would empower us and energize us to offer worship in Christ and through Christ that is acceptable to you. Day after day, week after week, month after month, until you call us home in the presence of Christ. Do that, Father, we pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.